Let's take our Bibles and go to Matthew chapter number 18. Matthew chapter number 18. Begin reading in Matthew 18 and verse number 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Uh, the math on that's 490. Now, that is a lot of times. When you think about it, if you started adding up the times that one individual has offended you and required forgiveness, uh, that would be quite a bit. However, I don't believe that the Lord is saying that 490 is the limit. I think that he's making a statement here to Peter that the number's not the issue. Uh, just keep on forgiving. Verse 22, Jesus, uh, excuse me, verse 23, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. I'd like to speak to you this morning on the subject, the most important tool in life's toolbox. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your blessings for your presence, your guidance, and your power as we bring this message of forgiveness to the congregation today. We pray that our hearts would be open, that we would hear from the Holy Spirit. We pray for your grace, for your healing, for your strength. We pray for all of those that uh, perhaps will be listening, whether it be uh, off the internet whether it be through CDs, we pray, Father, that this message will be a message of help. Lord, each one of us, at some point in our life, we struggle with uh, this the need for this important toolbox. And so we pray for your blessings. We pray if there be anyone here today that is without Jesus Christ, Lord, may this be the day of their salvation. May this be the day that they experience 
what true forgiveness really means. We ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. The year is 1944. Nazi Germany occupies Holland. An elderly Jewish watchmaker and his family are actively involved in the Dutch underground. By hiding Jewish people in a secret room of their home, members of the Ten Boom family courageously help Jewish men, women, and children escape Hitler's roll call of death. Yet one fateful day, their secret is discovered. The watchmaker is arrested, and soon after being imprisoned, he dies. His tender-hearted daughter, Betsy, also cannot escape the jaws of death at the hands of her cruel captors. In the Nazi concentration camp, she perishes. Corey, the youngest daughter, miraculously survives the ravages of Ravensbrück death camp. Two years after the war, Corey is speaking at a church in Munich. She has come from Holland to a defeated Germany bringing with her the message that God does indeed forgive. There in the crowd, a solemn face stares back at her. As the people file out, a balding, heavy-set man moves toward her, a man in a gray overcoat, catching a, a man clutching a brown felt hat. Suddenly, a scene flashes back in her mind. The blue uniform, the visored cap with its skull and crossbones, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the humiliation of walking naked past this man, this man who is now standing before her. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, he says. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. He extends his hand toward her and asks, Will you forgive me? Corey stares at the outstretched hand. The moment seems like hours as she wrestles with the most difficult decision she has ever had to make. The horrors of World War II are now far behind Corey, but the horrors of the war between forgiveness and unforgiveness still rage. How can she find the strength to take the hand of someone who represents the evil regime that destroyed the two people she held most dear? How can she forgive this man? To Corey's dismay, she discovers she cannot. Today I want to speak to you about the most important tool in life's toolbox, and that is the tool of forgiveness. Now, I've built several houses in my time. I've never worked as a carpenter, but in my building time, I found that this little tool right here is no doubt one of the most important tools in my toolbox. It's a nail puller. When we think about carpentry tools, we often think about hammers and saws and measuring tapes and so forth. And I remember as just a small boy uh, taking a block of wood and practicing and playing driving nails into that block of wood. That was so much fun. Nowadays, nowadays, um, what most people fail to recognize is that 95% of every nail that goes into a home 
was not driven by a hammer. It was driven by a pneumatic nailer. Now, I've got one. I'm not going to show it to you because it's really not necessary. But this nail gun, it drives the nails and literally it countersinks the head of that nail about a quarter inch into the wood. Uh, Many of these nails have a coating on them that when the friction of the nail going into the wood heats it up just a little bit, that coating actually uh, helps the nail to stick into the wood. Trust me, pulling one of these nails is not the task for an eight-year-old boy. I've had crowbars and I've had all kinds of nail pullers that work effectively if you can reach the head of the nail. But nowadays, the head of the nail is way too deep to reach. And that's why they came out with this type of nail puller. If you look at it, it's got some sharp points. And literally, in order to pull a nail today, you have to take your hammer and drive those sharp points into the wood and get underneath the head of that nail. And then, with all of your might, you have to stand on this thing and try to get the nail pulled. Anybody can pull the trigger of a nail gun and drive a nail. But it takes a lot of effort. And it takes some skill in order to get the nail pulled once it's been driven into the board. I heard a statement from a master carpenter one time. He said, the difference between a good carpenter and a bad one is how they deal with their mistakes. You always make mistakes whenever you're building anything. Well, I've got news for you. As we go through our life, there are things that we do that we make mistakes. And many of those mistakes are not easily remedied. God doesn't just hand us a simple crowbar. In much of our mistakes, the head of the nail, the mistake that we made, is driven so deeply that it takes some skill and it takes the right tools in order to correct those mistakes. I submit to you here this morning that the most important tool that we have in our toolbox is the tool of forgiveness. I want to talk to you about what the Bible teaches regarding forgiveness. The first thing, before we really get into the the subject of forgiveness, is I'd like for us to examine the elements of a good apology. Before we even get to forgiveness, I think it's important that we understand what a good apology is. I have heard bad apologies, have you? I hate to admit it, but I have made a lot of bad apologies. You know, the kind where you say, I'm sorry, but you made me do it. You never come out and say that, but you say, I'm sorry, and then you defend your position and you make your case that you were provoked to act as ugly as you act. You you know, it was the other person's fault that you said the things that you shouldn't have said to them. There are some elements of a good apology. Number one is being sincerely sorry. You know, the Bible talks about two different kinds of sorry. There's godly sorry. Let's read it, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. In other words, godly sorrow is not a revolving door. 
I've told you my testimony before. In my teenage years, there were many times that I'd come home after being out with my friends, doing things that I ought not have been doing. And I would come home as a born-again believer with the Holy Spirit living inside of me, and I'd lay down on my bed in my bedroom, and I would feel so dirty and so guilty and so sorry. And I would say, I would, I would close my eyes and I'd be praying to God while I'd be laying there. And I'd say, God, I'm sorry that I did the things that I did. I'm never going to do it again. But I did. I've had times where I prayed that prayer and asked, told God that I was sorry. And literally the very next day went out and did worse than I'd done that night. You know what my problem was is I didn't have the right kind of sorry. I was sorry that I felt guilty and bad. I was sorry that I was causing myself and other people problems. I was sorry that I got caught. But the Bible says that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. It wasn't until I came face to face with with the fact that my sins were not just affecting me, but they were affecting God that I found the grace in order to repent and no longer be that revolving door. I had to understand that it wasn't just about me, it was about Jesus Christ. The sorrow of the world worketh death. If you're finding a hard... I'm not saying that we don't struggle with the old nature and with the flesh and that you know just one act of godly sorrow is just going to make all of our temptations go away. I'm not saying that at all. But if we're just simply a revolving door and we're not able to maintain any type of a right relationship with God, we might want to examine ourselves in the mirror and say, you know what, my apologies to God uh, may be lacking the right type of sorry. Secondly, there's the issue of repentance. Repentance is not just saying I'm sorry, but repentance is a heartfelt, change of mind saying to the offended party, I'm not, I I don't want to do this again. I I am turning away and what I've said to you, what I've done to you, I'm not going to do it again by the grace of God. Luke 17 verse 4, and if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee saying, I repent Thou shalt forgive him. So a good apology has not only sincere sorry, but it also has repentance. And then the the third and last thing under this point that I'd like to draw out is the confession. First John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think it's imperative that we all understand what the word confess means. The word confess is the declaration of that which is true. Now, I can profess something and it can be false. They talk about somebody that the, the, you know, the cops drag in and they interrogate them and they, um, they coerce them into a false confession. You've heard that before, but the actual literal Meaning of the word confession means that a false confession is actually impossible because a confession is the declaration of something that is so. And so it cannot be false. A profession can, 
but a confession cannot. And that's why the Bible says, if we confess our sins, if we are willing to declare and to admit and to say, God or to whoever else that we have offended, this is what I did. When we do that, we are we are being open and honest and truthful and we are accepting the consequences of our behavior. I heard a preacher say one time, and I believe what he said was true, he said, repentance asks no quarter. I have known people, I, I have known more than, uh, than just a handful, I have known many people that have gotten in trouble and then they have gotten things right with their family or with God or with their church. And then when they're not treated the way that they think that they ought to be treated, then they get mad at the people for not helping them out. You know what I say to you? I'd say that that is a phony repentance. Because a real repentance, a real apology says, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that again. I take responsibility. If you're still mad at me, if you still hate me, if you still want to do whatever you want to to me, I've got it coming. I'm asking for mercy. End of story. End of question. This world is filled with people who don't know the real biblical elements of a good apology. Perhaps maybe in your marriage or even in your parenting, learning how to make good apologies would go a long way in your relationships. I can remember several times distinctly as a parent when my daughter was very, very young. And of course, listen, parents, you already know this, that learning how to be a good parent, by the time we figure it out, it's pretty much too late to do anything about it. I mean, do you ever feel as a parent that we're just kind of going through this life in the dark, trying to feel our way through it? We make mistakes, and we do the best that we can, and sometimes we, I mean, we're bringing children into this world, precious souls, and I mean, we're damaged goods ourselves. But I remember distinctly several times when I recognized the fact that the way that I had dealt with my daughter was not righteous, was not the way that God would have me to deal. And I can remember saying, Anna, I want you to know that I'm sorry. And I can still hear it in, in my head. She probably doesn't even remember that, but I have heard this on several occasions where I've just heard the words, that's okay, Papa. That's okay. And I can hear it like it's yesterday. And I can think about how precious that that was for that apology to just simply be accepted. That's okay, Papa. You know, a sincere, genuine apology can go a long way. A good apology does not excuse or blame behavior. So now I'd like to move on to the subject of forgiveness. Number two, I'd like to talk to you about what forgiveness is and what it is not. Forgiveness is the dismissing of a debt or demand that others owe you something. It is setting someone free who has crossed a line or fallen short of a standard. 
It is the releasing of the right to retaliation or resentment toward the offending party. That's what forgiveness is. I'm going to give you a list now of some things that forgiveness is not. And I hope that you'll either take notes or file these away in your memory because these are very helpful things. Forgiveness is not circumventing God's justice. It is allowing God to execute His justice in His time and in His way. We're not taking matters into our own hands. Next, forgiveness is not waiting for time to heal all wounds. You ever heard that before? Oh, time heals all wounds. I got news for you. That is certainly not the case in every scenario. It is clear that time doesn't heal wounds. Some people will simply not allow healing. In fact, I've known people that time did not make things better. They only made things worse. Forgiveness is not letting the guilty off the hook. It is moving the guilty from your hook to God's hook. Remember Joseph and his brothers? Joseph, man, you talk about someone that was unjustly treated by his own family, selling him as a slave. And then when they show up and he's the second in command of the world and they realize that it's Joseph, Don't you know that they wanted to... I don't know if the great pyramids were built at that time, but I guarantee you those brethren wanted to crawl under. They wanted to crawl under the Sphinx. They're thinking, this this whole situation really Sphinx. But remember what Joseph said? He said, am I in God's stead? I mean, who am I? It's not my place. Joseph never said that God's not going to do anything. Joseph just simply said, if it's up to me, I'm not going to do anything to you. But you know, every single one of his brethren, I guarantee you, they were suffering through that. Don't you know how many sleepless nights? I I can just picture all of the brethren standing before Joseph after their father passed away. And they're all standing there in bloodshot eyes because they haven't slept for a week. And, And they probably all, I mean... They didn't have any fingernails whatsoever. They were probably so nervous they were chewing their toenails. <laughs> Man, they, they, they were miserable. And they were suffering. And God probably wasn't even... God, God might have been just saying, you know what? They're going to suffer the rest of their life for how they treated Joseph. God's, God's like, I didn't have to do anything to get even with them other than just promote their brother Joseph to one of the leaders of the world. It's moving the guilty from our hook to God's hook where it belongs. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Alright? It takes two for reconciliation. Only one for forgiveness. That's a very important point to remember. Because there are times when we forgive someone that has never ever really said that they're sorry. We can forgive them and we can move on, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship has been reconciled. Forgiveness is not explaining away the hurt, but rather it is working through the hurt. Forgiveness is not bottling up your anger. It is resolving anger by releasing the offense to God. 
Forgiveness. This is another important one. Forgiveness is not forgetting. We've all heard people say, well, I've forgiven you, but I haven't forgotten. You know, there are a lot of things. We cannot control what we remember or not. In fact, in order to forgive someone, we have to remember what they did to us, correct? So it's impossible to forgive and forget at the same time. However, let me say this. If you would be honest and you feel in your heart about the person that you have quote-unquote forgiven, and you're saying, well, I've forgiven you, but I just haven't forgotten, that's a good sign that perhaps maybe you haven't truly forgiven. You're just saying it because you don't want to look bad. The person who truly forgives but cannot forget says, you know what, I have forgiven you, and I am trying real hard to forget because I don't want to remember this. But you don't say, well, I've forgiven you, but I haven't forgotten. That's not the evidence of a genuine, from-the-heart forgiveness. Uh, And then the last thing on what forgiveness is not, it is not a feeling. It is a choice. It is an act of the will. I will say this from experience, that when you forgive someone that has hurt you or wronged you, you don't immediately feel better toward that person. In fact, something that I would say is that if you are asking someone for forgiveness, don't expect them to make you feel better. Your apology is designed to make the person you've offended feel better. And they may not feel better instantly. In fact, the deeper and and, and more severe the hurt, the more time that it may take for that wound to heal over. You don't have to keep picking the scab, okay? That sounded kind of disgusting, but I think you get the picture. It's like, make a good apology and uh, don't worry or, or offer forgiveness and then make sure that it is a choice, it is an act of your will. I heard someone say this regarding forgiveness. When an offense is brought up later, the person says, I distinctly remember forgetting that. See, it's a choice. It's an act of the will. We may not feel like we have forgiven the person, but we can behave and we can appropriate that through our will. And I promise you that if you really mean business, eventually in time, the feelings will indeed follow. Number three, I'd like to talk to you about the consequences of unforgiveness. Probably the most important thing that we need to know from the Scripture is that unforgiveness affects our relationship with God. In Matthew 6 and verse number 14, Jesus says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now let me say this, this is not, this passage is not an ongoing uh, test of our salvation. Unforgiveness can possibly be a roadblock to getting saved, but it is not a conditional requirement of staying saved. Let me kind of make that a little easier to understand. If you, uh, if you're a born again Christian, and you have chosen to not forgive someone that has hurt you, that does not mean that you are not saved. 
but it does mean that the relationship, notice in the text here it says, neither will your heavenly Father. Jesus is talking to people that God is literally their heavenly Father. They're His children. We have to get saved in order to become one of His children. But you know what? When we won't forgive people that have wronged us, then God looks at it and He says, why should I forgive you for where you've wronged me? when you won't forgive them. And our opening text makes that principle very clear. Our relationship with God and the blessings of God, that closeness with God is limited or broken because we choose to forgive people that have wronged us. There are consequences for unforgiveness. Next, unforgiveness tends the garden of bitterness. I am certainly not a very good gardener. And I know some of you, you uh, I know people will bring us produce from their garden. And some of you, if you can raise a good garden in statesville soil and statesville climate and weather, you are an excellent gardener. In Idaho, where I'm from, they had this volcanic rich soil and it was dry and desert. But boy, you add water to it and it will grow just about anything but you have to add water to it. Here, you have to add lime, and you have to add nitrogen, and you have to deal with the bug problems, and then you have to deal with fungus. Oh, and then, by the way, we have an algae. I mean, the the list just keeps going on and on and on. Those of you that grow a successful garden, I say, God bless you. You do a great job. But you know as well as I know that it doesn't just happen. Do you know that unforgiveness, when we, when you refuse to forgive someone, you are making yourself a master gardener over the bitterness in your own soul. I, I, I guess you would say you have a black thumb. <laughs> Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews 12.15, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. You know what forgiveness does? It grows bitterness in our soul. And bitterness has a horrible effect on ourself as well as all of those around us. I did a little paint touch-up the other day. We had um, moved something in our living room and it had left a... Uh, where one of the drywall anchors had been, and I'd removed it, and I'd patched it with some uh, spackle. And, of course, that you have to come back, and you have to touch that up with some paint. So I got the wall paint out that, uh, you know, we've had this can of paint for probably 10, 12 years. And so I got it out, popped the lid off, and, of course, you got this black liquid floating on the top. I get a stir stick, and I start to stir that in until pretty soon the color is this nice, consistent tan. So I dipped the paintbrush in it, and I go and I just kind of feather in, and you know, did a pretty good job there on the wall. I come back, and I notice that at the top of the lid of the can, from that can sitting so long, there's all kinds of rust around the ridge of the can. And so I try to be careful so that when I put the lid back on, I'm not knocking all of that rust into the paint. So I put carefully put the lid on, and then. I get the hammer, and I just work my way around the edge of the can. Well, I leave the can sitting there on the workbench on a piece of cardboard, 
And the next day I come out and I, it was the most, I've never seen this before. I look at the can and on both sides of the can there is like two oozing bubbles of partially dried paint coming out from the bottom on each side of the can. And I go, that is, I have never seen that before. What happened? And so I kind of lift up the can, and lo and behold, underneath the can, there's just all kind of paint that has leaked out of the bottom. And evidently, the corrosion that I had seen on the top part of the can was also in the bottom. And when I'm hitting that with a hammer trying to seal the lid, it must have jarred the corrosion underneath, and it just started allowing that paint to leak out. You know what the problem was? The problem was, is there was a corrosion on the inside. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. When we allow bitterness into our life, we are allowing a corrosion in our soul that is going to affect us. It may not affect you today. It may not affect you tomorrow. But when life in general starts hammering you, you're going to find that you don't have the strength and something's going to give. Something's going to break. Unforgiveness tends the garden of bitterness. And then the next thing, unforgiveness gives Satan the upper hand. Hey, I'm standing before you and You've seen me with my sling. I, I've got I've got one arm that I'm beginning to be able to use it. But I was thinking about the other day about uh, we were in a situation where I wasn't quite sure about the people that were around us, and it dawned on me. I thought, man, I, I've always felt like that if somebody was trying to harm my family or my wife, I'd at least be able to make a showing of myself. I, I, I might get whooped, but at least they're going to know they were in a fight. And then I'm thinking that I got my left arm. I'm toast. I mean, I'm history. Everybody, everybody has an advantage over me. Listen, we've got five-year-old girls in the church. They got an advantage over me. I don't want to face spiritual warfare with our adversary, the devil, giving him that kind of an advantage, do you? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, he said, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, look at verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Hey, this church at Corinth, they had to deal with some ugly, nasty, wicked, perverse stuff. And through Paul's rebuke, they dealt with it. The fornicating man, they put him out of their fellowship. And I guarantee you, this, this guy had some family members. And this wasn't just some individual. This, was a, this affected the entire church, putting this man out. And then the man comes back, and he's the one that had godly sorrow unto repentance. And he had done all of that evil, and there were some in the church that were just kind of stepping back. It's like, yeah, I don't know. He's going to have to prove it. You know, when you think about it, that, that man that Jesus told Peter about, 
that if he comes to you seven times in a day and says, I repent, that you're supposed to forgive him? What about the uh, burn me once, shame on me, burn me twice? No, 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 no. Burn me. You know. Burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me. Did I get it right? Yes. You know, we say that because we don't want to be the fool. You know, you said that you're sorry once. By the second time, we're probably thinking, you don't really mean that. Do you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying that we have no right to judge people's motives or their heart. I I don't like that any more than you do. I know when I said that, you're probably going, ooh, this is going to really drastically change my mindset. Well, it will, because I, I know after the second or the third time, and I thought about this, somebody comes up and punches you in the nose. Oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. Okay, I forgive you. Second time, they come up, they punch you in the nose. Ah, I repent. Forgive me. Okay, Jesus, you said that I have to forgive you. You know what? By the third time, that's going to start straining us, right? So what do you do? I'll tell you what I do. I duck. (laughs) If I got to forgive you seven times, after the second time, I'm at least ducking. (laughs) But Jesus is saying that People's motives and their heart is God's territory and not ours. We need to focus on what our territory is, and our territory is to be gracious and forgiving. We judge actions. We do not judge motives. Number four, let's talk about the divine aspect of forgiveness. What I mean by the divine aspect is that just like in many cases, it is so, it seems humanly impossible to forgive people. We are overwhelmed with hurt and emotion, and we just think, I cannot do that. That's when we need to get outside of ourselves, and we need to start thinking more vertically about God and looking to Him for the help that we need. We need to learn how to extend grace to the ignorant. Jesus on the cross, He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God, they don't know what they're doing. And so, please forgive them. So we might say, well, what about they know what they're doing and they're hurting me anyways? Well, we can look to the effects of Jesus on one of His apostles, Stephen, who in the middle of being stoned just simply for preaching Jesus Christ, It says in Acts 7.60, He kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He didn't say they don't know what they're doing. Stephen understood they know exactly what they're doing. But God, please don't put this sin on their charge. Just don't even keep record of this sin. Listen, that is impossible to do without the divine help of Jesus Christ living inside of us. Extending grace. Grace, unmerited favor. Next, forgiving for Christ's sake. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness 
and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Watch this. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. But you don't understand, preacher. They don't deserve my forgiveness. Ah, neither do we deserve God's forgiveness. God didn't forgive us because we deserved it. God forgave us for Christ's sake. And then forgiving as we have been forgiven. Colossians 3.13 says, forbearing one another. That means simply just putting up with one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. The divine aspects of forgiveness. In conclusion, I'd like to finish where we left off. If you'll recall, here's Corey Tinboom standing in a church in Munich, Germany. Here is a former guard of the Nazi Ravensbrück camp that's standing in front of her. He's got his hand held out asking her to forgive him for all that he did to her as well as her family and everybody else. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, she says. And I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, an act of her will, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. I forgive you, my brother, with all my heart. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the very love itself. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness is not based on what is fair or just. It wasn't fair for Jesus to hang on the cross, but he did so that we could be forgiven. The most important tools aren't always the ones that we use the most, but they're the ones that we cannot do without. Forgiveness is a tool that we cannot live without. Would you bow your heads as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You for the cross of Calvary. Thank You for Your wonderful, gracious forgiveness of us. Lord, I do not know the hearts of each and every 
person that's in this congregation today. I don't know who all will listen to this sermon. But God, I do know that there are always times in our life when we need this tool of forgiveness. God, you know how difficult it is for us when we get hurt, when we feel like that we're right. It is so difficult. Lord, help us to stay humble before Thee. Help us, Father, to remember the grace of God that You bestowed upon us. And help us, Father, to keep our eyes upon the cross of Calvary rather than our own sense of justice. I pray for each and every one here today that the grace of God would help. Help us to use the tool of forgiveness in our life and to use it wisely and to use it well and to use it often. I pray for your blessings upon each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.